Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy. I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. Benjamin Schwartz, our Assistant Producer, is here at the controls. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording this show on May 28, 2019. Before we get going, I want to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have questions or comments about the show today, or if you have anything you'd like us to discuss on future programs. We would love to hear from you. As always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio. Just search World Business Academy. Also, I would like to remind everyone that we have a weekly radio show, Solutions News. You can send us a note if you'd like to find out how to listen to that program as well. Anyway, thank you so much. And Ronaldo, what are we going to talk about today? Hi, Christy. I got to tell you, um, there's a lot of confusing news out there today. And, I, and, I'm, you know, and as I was thinking this over, I wasn't sure which direction to go off. So I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the front page of the New York Times. I figure you can't go wrong with that, right? So if you look at the good place to start, you look at the front page of the New York Times, and what you see is this very interesting article that uh, Mr. Trump is going to take the, um, the assault that has been launched against all environmental protection laws, and what he's going to do is he's not only going to try and eliminate the remaining protections, he's going to actually try to take on the fact that the science of climate change is not science. Putting science on trial. I Putting think, science is on what, trial. How they're terming it. Yeah, right. And this is on the right-hand side of the front page. In fact, the headline is, In Climate Fight, Trump Will Put Science on Trial. Now, why that's interesting is, is the following. As we record the show, today's the 28th, as we record the show, the entire state of Arkansas is already partially underwater and is looking at floods that have no analog in the prior 500 years of history. Yep. Um, we're looking at massive destruction with tornadoes all across the Midwest. Um, I know that we looked into that before we went on the air. And yeah, there's been, there's been 500 tornadoes reported in the last 30 days. It's unprecedented. The day after day after day onslaught is, uh, I think, 11 straight days. It's, it's being called unprecedented. It, it, which it is. Um, and, 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 and why I'm, I'm touching on that, yeah, in May 2017, there were fewer tornadoes than in 18, and in 19, we've blown the record off because over 500 have been reported, which was twice the volume of 17 all by itself. Right. And yeah. so, and actually, why, May in 2018, it was a little bit of an, a down year because, yeah. for one, it was a fluke, but it was one of the less. We're still over 200. We're still over 200. Yeah. And, and now we're over 500. We're already. over 500. Yeah. And in so, the last 30 days. In the last 30 days. So. so What's happening is, even people may not know, I mean, the people in the Midwest may not be sophisticated enough to know, uh, many of them, that climate change is actually hitting them now. It's not like an event, as we've talked on the show many times, it's not something coming, it's something here. And <clears throat> for those people who are not sophisticated enough to know that, who would then be willing to subscribe to Trump's rhetoric, it only works, Trump's rhetoric only works if you don't pay attention to the consequences. And the further out in time we go with Trump, the more the consequences become apparent. So the amount of damage 
that's being done to the Midwest in terms of floods, tornadoes, is unprecedented. Now, the silver lining in that cloud is we'll have to hire more Americans to repair more of our infrastructure, whether we have an infrastructure bill or not, because you got to fix those levees. You can't let not fix them, although I'm not sure we're going to get to fixing them. And you got 50 miles of levees on one, on one river alone Yeah. in the Mississippi. So, And in Arkansas, the entire, the entire river is above flood stage, and the, and the main dam holding back the rest is topped out, and they're expecting another couple of days of rain. So <clears throat> when people lose their houses to a tornado, or they see it fall below the waves of a river that hasn't risen that high in 500 years, at some point, they're going to go, you know, something's wrong here. And I, I'm fascinated by how many times the, the news reporters go and they put a microphone in front of somebody who, poor thing, just lost their house or, you know, saw their neighborhood go underwater or whatever. And they go, you know, what do you think? Well, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. It's the most common thing they say. I've never seen anything like it. I, I just don't know what, it's just it's un unprecedented. So people have not connected yet, apparently. The damage these environmental policy rollbacks are doing and the fact that it's already here. So since they're not calculating the damage from those environmental policies, and that's my way of saying Trump's rhetoric hasn't caught up with him yet, because they haven't yet seen that, they're now in a complete state of confusion, and they're pretty disillusioned, and they don't know which way to go. And my sense is that that very consistent number that you see all the time in every poll for the last two years, Trump's got about somewhere between 30 to 40% of the American public buys it, okay, buys his stuff. And that's, that number never goes up, above 41 or so, and it never goes below 30, 20, 35, actually, 34. So somewhere in that range of 34 to 41, 7 or 8% of basic Trump supporters, which is as hardcore as you can get, I think are susceptible to waking up one morning when their bathtub is flooded, and it isn't because they turned the tap on. Okay, <laughs> you know? And if that's true, people will start to get connected. We need environmental protection laws because it's us that they're protecting through the environment. And I don't think people made that connection. Environmental protection is protecting us. So I do, th I do think that it is, it's coming up into people's awareness more and more. I know that, that farmers, growers, are very connected to the environmental changes. And the fact that it's been a very wet year, that spring planting hasn't happened in many parts of the, of the country because of they just, the ground is too saturated to actually plant anything. That means they can't plant corn, for example, in, in a, in a right. field which normally would take corn because it won't mature in time. Right. And now with the with various tariffs that are happening, that's leading to whole, you know, I know that was one of our next yeah, things we're going to talk about, but I, I, do, I do think that people are becoming more aware of the connection between these crazy weather events and climate change. And it's 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 hard to not. I, I think people are waking slowly, up slowly. Slowly, it's taking yeah. some time. But you know that boiling frog story, right? I, I mean, do. I do know, you know that. You, yes. The old story about if you put a if you throw a frog in boiling water, it jumps right out. But if you put it in cold water and slowly turn the temperature up one degree at a time, it never realizes it's getting cooked yeah. till it's too late. And and there's an element of that here. So what I'm saying is, I don't think I can see 41 percent of the American public, which is Trump's highest ranking, getting clear on climate change. I don't think they are. But I can see 7 or 8%. There is a portion of 32%, 33%, who literally would be okay if he shot somebody in the middle of Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was absolutely correct. And that he knew that back then is kind of interesting. He knew he was building a cult following. So, so now, 
we're, ha we're learning that we have to pay the piper, right? The piper played his tune, now we got to pay for it. Well, he's a con man, and he's been doing that for his entire career. Right, and, and still getting away with and it. He knows how to, that's how, yeah. he knows how to play people. You know, even, I mean, did uh, you the see Duke the... Deutsche Bank, I mean, I don't know if you've, I've listened to some interesting podcasts about Trump, in Trump Inc., and his relationship with Deutsche Bank, and yeah. how he got well, one arm of it to loan him money to pay the other arm. This is, we're talking millions yeah. and millions of dollars. Oh, yeah, hundreds of millions. Yeah, Bank. hundreds, of, yeah. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. Okay, so here, <laughs> just to finish up with the, this, the Midwest thing and, and the climate. So the objective evidence of climate change is overwhelming, which is why of the top 2,000 climatologists in the world, uh, you know, except for the two that work for oil companies, the other 1,998 all agree. But I do think even the last 3% of climate, quotes deniers on the science side are now being, those, those studies are now being proven yeah, wrong. Well, they, they I mean, you know, none of them were real, but they're actually now documentedly false. Yeah, well, they, 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 we've known for a And for our listeners who don't know, my first book, on climate in any way, or renewable energy actually was 12 years ago. So climate is something new to the Academy. It's only a decade old. 22 years. What, 22 years. Wasn't it like Profiles in Power? That was 1997. No, no, no. That's, that's different. That was, that was on nuclear. No, okay. The, the one is okay. um, the Freedom from Mideast Oil. I think it's 2007. 2007. Yeah. 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 And, and, um, in that book, which has really stood the test of time, we went through all these renewable energy strategies because we were concerned about the impact of not having renewable energy and fossil fuels. And then we got from there, we got more and more deeply involved in climate change. And that's, I'd say we've been heavily involved in climate change for at least the last eight years. Well, in watching that happen, we saw all this coming and talked about it. And I hope we're successful in translating it to people's useful information. But what I, as I look at it today, and I say to myself, no even reasonable fence sitter. So I'm taking the 30% of Trump people who would watch him kill somebody and say it was okay. But the other 7 or 8% that are in there and everybody else on top of them now knows something's amiss with the climate. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they've plugged together the cause and effect. It's a remiss and a miss because of what we're doing, human cause. And I think it's because the scale's so large. It's hard for people to see that because they took an extra trip in a gas-guzzling car, somehow that's you know, created a tornado in Kansas. But it did. And so now is what I'm looking at, and, and why it's the opening subject for our, our conversation today is, what people have to be aware of, there's going to be pluses and minuses to this damage of weather, which is going to get worse and much, much faster. Uh, and I, I think we told our other audience that we're going to do this methane acceleration paper that will come out this week. In it, we talk about the methane accelerator. And we talk about how what was thought was a hockey stick that Gore identified uh, is much sharper upward swing than we thought. Even. More like a, a like, cliff. Like, it's almost like straight <laughs> it's up. Like, it's, it's, it's like a cliff that you're going to fall And that's off. how you can go from 200 tornadoes to 500 tornadoes in a year. That's exactly how you do it. So what, we, what I want to leave people with is this. We're going to continue to try and sort the economic consequences of these behavioral patterns. And we'll do our best to let you know when they happen, before they happen, what they're going to be. Clearly, the U.S. deficit is going to continue to skyrocket. And in fact, more so than even Trump realizes. Uh, I don't think he cares, but I think that's something to know. Uh, because the economy of the, the global economy is doing so poorly because of us, the U.S., it's, it's likely, when I say because of us, it's what we're stirring up in the global economy is having implications not only in slowing down Chinese growth, but that's in turn further slowing down European growth, which is further slowing down everything across the map. Right. And, and I think that in the process of looking at the, the remediation attempts for climate, example, farmers, as you were talking about a moment ago, they're going to get another $16 billion. Mm -hmm. Probably won't cover their full losses. And I think most farmers know the difference between growing soybeans and selling them and having a customer and getting a check from the government, yeah. which 
probably won't be repeated. No, and I and I also think that the farming community is they don't like to live on subsidies. They would much rather have a a, a market based yeah. economy. And the smart farmers realize that they, they're not going to get handouts. Well, and they're not going to get the soybean customer right. back. That yeah. soybean customer yeah. went to Brazil. They're not coming yeah. back. China is maybe never coming and, back. And, and, and that's you know, a big deal. It's a very big deal. And and so my reason for pointing this out is it will be very hard to, to sort out the pros and cons in terms of how it's going to impact your wallet. And on aggregate, I can tell you your wallet's going to get hurt, just like mm -hmm. we know that what the current cost of existing tariffs, silliness that Trump's done, is $863 per average American. Per person. Per person. It's already kind of a... So far. So far. We know that his ridiculous position on Iran has caused the price of oil, even though it's down this year, is up much higher than it would ever be because there's at least a $10 a barrel premium in there for Iran. Mm -hmm. And he continues to stoke that fire in Iran so that he can get more money for his Saudi Arabian allies. Silver lining there is maybe people will buy more gas-efficient cars or electric vehicles and it'll push them it, it may. It away may. from the big trucks. It, it may, but you know, it's, it, it's been slow in coming. Yeah, it's slow and well, I mean, gas prices in the U.S. are still way under what they are in most other developed countries because we don't tax because it. we don't tax it appropriately. Yeah, absolutely correct. So when I look at these things, I say, okay, when we we looked out a year ago, let's say, what are the implications of all these kind of things? We looked at, we said, gee, you know, the stock market's going to go up and down like a year ago. Well, we got that one right. Yeah, you know, and if you net change as of today over the last year, it's up four percent. That'll get wiped out. In a day or two. In a day, tomorrow. You know, yeah. and it'll go down to negative two, and then it'll go up until, and it's been doing that all year, and bobbing along all year. And so if you'd have been in the stock market, and you've been hanging by your fingernails, as it went up 260 points one day, and down 260 points the next day, and up 400 the next day, down 130 the next day, if that was causing you to, to lose any sleep, congratulations, if you own gold, you didn't lose any sleep, and it stayed the same. Mm -hmm. So it didn't do it much worse. Okay, and if you look at oil, uh, as I said earlier, it's down about 16%. And the reason it's down is because we have gotten a lot sm smarter as a nation and as a, as, as a civilization globally about fossil fuels. Having said that, because Trump is in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry, the things that he does that keeps the price of oil up are astounding. The Iran thing being the biggest, but there are several other examples I could give. So if it wasn't for that, how much further down would oil be than 16%? I would argue that oil's got another 25% to go down easily. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make some money and you're really kind of a gambler, eh, go short oil. It'll probably work. And there's a fund I can recommend to you if you like that. Write us at, write us at Info World Business and we'll tell you how you can short oil with a, with a fund. Okay, so that's the weather and how it is affected by the latest insanity from Washington. The next thing I want to go into, because it's also going to be a compounding factor in how we look at the economic indicators, and that's big pharma. Which I think most mid, mid middle Americans would have more connection to pharmaceutical costs. Yeah, than they than they do. I mean that that hits them in the gut a little bit more deeply than the yeah. than environmental woes. And <clears throat> there's now a third party that lots of people listen to, who is finally screaming bloody murder, and that's AARP. I was joking uh, before we went on air with Benjamin and Christy today, and I said, you know, one of the nice things about having white hair like I do is that there's white-haired people everywhere. <laughs> you know, there's lots of us. And AARP, who has always been softly against drug prices, realizing that they're hurting the elderly more disproportionately, and has always listed Medicare protection, which is now under fire too, and then Social Security, and then drug prices, has now recently focused on drug prices, which they should, because our drugs cost us 40 to 50% more on average than they should if we were to buy the same drug made in America in any other country, and that would include 
Canada. Even with the cost of shipping. Yep. Yeah. And in, and we, we pointed out recently that insulin, which is a life or death drug, which you can buy as cheap as 8 to $10 a prescription in Canada, is $330 in America. Same drug. Made the same factory. It's 330 versus 10. I mean, I just want to correct one thing. It's not eight or nine per prescription. I think it's $30 for a vial of insulin in Canada. What's going on here? Well, Big Pharma has such enormous power that it's got the U.S. government to agree, which is the case under law, that we're not even allowed to negotiate drug prices for Medicare. So we're the only Western democracy that doesn't negotiate with drug companies on the price we pay for drugs because we make them, and so we let them gouge us because they give that money to the political process. They can't do that in Germany. They can't do that in Canada. They can't do that in France or Italy or Scandinavia. Why do we let them do that here? Well, finally, AARP has realized that if they don't bring drug prices down, they can't control medical costs, period, and Medicare will get attacked. That's why it's happening, because they realize that Medicare is now in jeopardy at these prices. Conversely, if they were to take and reverse it, and push big pharma into, number one, negotiating for drug prices with uh, Medicare. That alone would change the entire landscape. We could save 40 to 50% of the entire drug bill of Medicare, which is in the tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions most likely, if we did that one thing. We could collectively negotiate Just, that, one, that one thing. Number two, we should, we should also have a law that says no drug can be sold in America for more than 10% above the cost that it's sold in five comparable countries. And all of a sudden, even people like me stop paying for so much. Forget about Medicare. People like Benjamin, who's still in school, would pay less. So my point is that we need to go tackle the cost of drugs, the, the patent extensions, which are not supposed to happen. So we now know there was a conspiracy. Been a, they, there's there's a, a criminal case pending against a number of pharmaceutical companies for controlling generic drugs. Yeah. Okay. Tiva being the largest generic yeah. drug maker in the world is part of that suit. Yeah. What they do is they pay, uh, the big companies pay the, the generic companies not to make the drug, even if the, right. even when the patent goes. Yeah. They uh, say, you're going to make $10 million expires. selling your generic drug. It's a lot of work. We'll give you $10 million. Don't make exactly. it. Exactly. That's what happens. Yeah. And it's illegal as all the dickens. Yeah. But the federal government's not going to stop it because that's basically Trump's mm -hmm. private law firm now. So they're not going to protect us. So how are we going to get protection? I want to add one other thing to this puzzle, and then I want to try and answer my own question. And that is, I had this fascinating experience in the car on the way here, listening to the Attorney General of the State of Pennsylvania, talking about how much money the opioid crisis was costing and how much profit they made. So he used the example of um, one company, uh, which the Sackler family owns, at Purdue Medical, and in that company, he said, and these are his numbers, I'm just quoting what he said, they made about $40 billion over a, I don't know, it's like a five-year, 10-year period. It's the state of Pennsylvania has sustained $140 billion in damages, and that's why I'm suing them. So let's just say for the heck of it that he sues Big Pharma, and, and his point was every, every state in America should go get the money back from Big Pharma that they cost us with this opioid crisis. Well, you're talking many billions of dollars at that point. Mm -hmm. Many, 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 many billions. If that were to happen, if they got held liable for that, now I'll add one more thing. What if the same people who had to pay that bill, the insurance companies, guess what? Same guys are paying for flooded Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Same guys are paying for Tornado Alley. So what's happening is our insurance industry is standing on the verge of being hollowed out. If we ever had, if they had to pay the bills they've racked up, mm -hmm. they don't have that much money. So you've already seen one reinsurer go down, and, 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 and we, we have a section of the show uh, we've called over the years financial literacy, right? 
under financial literacy a number of years ago, we did a, a show where we talked about how reinsurance works. Mm -hmm. uh, insurance companies go to a second company called a reinsurer, and they insure the insurance company. The first reinsurer went down just this year, 2019. And you're sitting, I'm saying to myself, wow, the real damage hasn't even hit yet. Right. And, and that's linked to the natural disasters that happened. Natural disasters last, that have happened. In the last couple of years. Yep. I mean, the liability from these financial uh, hits to pharmaceutical companies, is gonna, that's going to come in there, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so if all of those come together, if big pharma is forced to negotiate fairly on prices, which could cut 40% of their bill, which, by the way, would represent more than 100% of the profit because they're so wasteful. Mm -hmm. So they would have to retool themselves to be more efficient. And guess what? They'd have to start cutting back first. Lobbyists and lawyers. I think that wouldn't would be a, that be a wonderful. That would be wonderful. I think that might be a little optimistic. But. No, no. I think no, no. I think that what happens when you lose your disposable income? Look at the NRA. Because they're short of money, all of a sudden their lobbying ability has dr dramatically hmm. been decreased. So if big pharma gets hit with the with the opioid bill, gets hit with with a forced reduction on the price of their drugs, and gets hit in court for giving back the money they took from the states who had to pay for the mess they cleaned up. Together, that could bring big pharma under control and, and free them up from controlling the U.S. government. Well, that's pretty, pretty exciting because if you were to think a couple of years ago, what were the biggest lobbies in America and who were distorting the laws the most? Say NRA. That's starting to fade. Tobacco. Tobacco, gone. And by the way, I was delighted to see the report from R.J. Reynolds today. It had a very bad year. That's good. So, Cigarette yeah. sales down. Cigarette but, sales are down. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the third one, of course, was uh, banking. And, and, I, and the reason I want to touch on banking is I want to segue now from big pharma, which is sucking money at the public draw at our expense, mm -hmm. and creating really difficult economic conditions for me to interpret because it's, there, there's so many variables going on. And now I'm going to throw one more in the pot in this bonfire, which is, which is bank regulation. Because clearly that's one of the largest, if not the largest, lobby in America. I mean, who controls the American government? Basically, I think the banks. It's the yeah, the financial, right? yeah, definitely. So... So we behind um, farm, the pharmaceutical industry. Well, I'm saying that they're <laughs> along with them. Yeah, it's up so there. For those of you who've never been to Washington D.C. or spent a little time there, there's a thing called K Street, and K Street is where all the lobbyists are. And it's one of the more opulent sections of town. And what's fascinating to me about K Street is the amount of money that those lobbyists pump through the U.S. government is just sickening. And then you add to that the revolving door. So if you want to make a lot of money at the FDA. You work there for 10 or 15 years, and then you get hired by private industry for three times the salary. That's what happens, okay? And that happens one after the other. It, it was Trump is the first administration to come along, which actually intentionally put bad people into agencies for the purpose of trying to have those agencies gutted. Right. Prior to this, I don't think there were bad people at the EPA. There were good people at the EPA. I don't think there were bad people at the FDA. There were good people at the FDA. But they also knew at the FDA, if they were good to Johnson & Johnson, when they decided to leave the FDA, Johnson & Johnson would have a nice they office. They'd have a nice, a nice consulting role. Nice consult or employee or role. Employee, yeah. So now that brings me to this, this latest crisis, and that is the attempt, and I think it will be successful, where the Trump administration is now eradicating some of the key regulations put in place after the 2008 meltdown. When you have Ben Bernanke... Republican appointed by a, per, a Republican president as chairman of the Fed, 
Janet Yellen is in there. Who is a Democrat, Timothy former Geithner. chairman of the Fed, and Timothy Geithner, Democrat, and also another Republican who was Secretary of the Treasury during the meltdown from Goldman Sachs, what's his name? Um, is that Jacob Liu? No, 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 no. no. Uh, he was former chairman of Goldman Sachs. He was the Secretary of Treasury during the meltdown. Balding guy. You've seen him hundreds of times on television. Paulson. Paulson. Paulson, yes. Thank you, Paulson. Paulson. So Paulson, Republican. Bernanke, Republican. Yellen, Democrat. Geithner, Democrat. All came together and basically issued a, a tremendous warning. And what they said was, the changes that are being proposed by the Trump administration, I put this in writing, would make it impossible to prevent the buildup of risk in financial institutions whose failure would threaten the stability of the system as a whole. In other words, we're recreating 2008. We're setting the conditions back in place that we unwound after paying that horrific price. Why on earth would people do that? Well, they only do it because of lobbying, right? That's what happens. And it seems to me, in the wake of this crisis, what we need to be doing is we have to start looking at each of the kinds of instruments that led to the collapse. Because the form of regulation, which is very sophisticated and very arcane, is something very few people can follow. So if we don't put a category heading on it, it's hard to know what they're talking about. So let's take one. Derivatives. So derivatives are going to all-time high again. What is a derivative? Derivative is basically a legalized gambling instrument. Why is it crazy? Because if you allow the banks to gamble with your money, and if they lose, they get paid, and if they win, they get paid more, that's a broken system. That is and we saw that system. happen in 2008. Mm -hmm. So what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to have stability in our financial system, and we want it to be comprehensive. So the, the thing that particularly got these two Democrats, two Republicans, and some other people all heated up was they're trying to exempt out insurance companies as being not necessary to be stress tested due to size and impact. Right, as not, not systemic enough, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and so you talk about MetLife, you talk about Prudential, and here's the favorite one, American International, AIG. AIG. Which we already, was, we already bailed them out bailed once. Them once. And the whole company went down, and now they're going to take them out of the system again. Now, that's just crazy. We, and we're, we, we, yeah, and we're talking about this in the context of just having described the insurance industry as being at serious risk it's, from, it's, from actual events that are happening in all the over the world. Yeah, which it is. Yeah. So you have a, they tie that all together, you go, okay, we were talking about insurance companies are paying more because of the quote, natural disasters, close quote. Insurance companies are paying more because of certain defalcations that have been discovered. Insurance companies are paying more on a variety of ways. And these are the same organizations that we're now going to say, oh, you know what? We're not going to pay that much attention to you. You go ahead and we'll, we'll exempt you from that kind of regulation. And then, in, of course, the big banks, exempting the big banks from any form of Glass-Steagall, which means the separation of depositors' money from gambling money, which should be their own, meaning the banks, if they want to gamble their own money, be my guess, but the shareholders don't let them do it. The shareholders want them to gamble with the public's money. And then we pay them back again because we're federally insured. So when you get rid of all these safeguards, these guardrails, and we learned the hard way why we needed them. Remember, Glass-Steagall started after the Great Depression. Right. Okay. So it, we, when we put all these together, we say, you know, we don't want banks gambling with the, dinner, with the, with the consumer money, paying dividend, higher dividends to their shareholders, doing stock buybacks, and hollowing out their balance sheets so they can't pass a stress test. So 
when you put all that together and you say, and the insurance companies are now behind getting deregulated when they're at the, at the very same time when they're at the most peril, what we're talking about is a, a financial collapse. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. it, it could easily it's happen. Brewing. It's, it's brewing. It's brewing. And, yeah. and, and if we're smart people, we just got to be aware that if we don't stop it, it doesn't get stopped. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't show up with your, in your congressman's face about what they're doing or she's doing, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt pretty bad, too. So when I put all these things together, and then I look at the question of economic indicators, I see a fascinating split. I see a, um, a short-term positive that is being sustained primarily because Wall Street believes it can keep the game going a little longer. So the financial press is doing a good job of keeping people confused about what's really happening. Now, Wall Street's not confused, but they're keeping people confused because they want to keep stringing out this incredible gravy train they've been on. So they're in, in giving good information to raise consumer well, selective confidence. Information. Selective, selective information. Selective information. They're being okay. very selective, but they know better. Mm -hmm. And they know that once the correction starts, they're not going to be able to stop it. And so they're trying to milk this run for all that they can because they know that the fundamentals are so weak. Now, I was surprised, and I'm going to be the first to admit it, that the GDP grew at 3.2% or so it is reported for the last quarter. And why I'm surprised is because I would have guessed and did guess it would come down. But it didn't come down. It went up, according to these numbers. Now, if they're believable, and again, I'm not sure because I don't trust anything that Bill Barr publishes at the Justice Department, <laughs> so I'm not sure if I trust the numbers coming out of Treasury, particularly with Steve Mnuchin in charge. But if that's true, it tells me that the short-term euphoria, the sugar high that's going on in the economy is in perilous condition. So I was wrong. It should have gone down by now. I would have guessed it had been 2.5% instead of 3.2. I was wrong. And um, it's staying up there. Now, I did articulate a year ago why we would get some lift, which is because we raised the minimum wage. So 100% of the raise in the minimum wage, which has now happened in 19 states and any number of cities, that has gone directly into consumption, mm -hmm. no question. And that's buoying up consumption. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the sales, even in the month of April, of the department stores that tend to sell to the lower middle class and below, you don't see good earnings reports. No. You, you see bad coals, chasing yeah, pennies. The, the exception was Walmart. Yeah, but that's different because is, that's the cheapest place you can go to get right. in and you can't afford to get a pennies. Right. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the default. And even that is not necessarily a good default. So I'm, I'm going to predict even though I was wrong so far, I'm, I'm going to predict that this is the month of May. I'm going to say by July, consumer confidence will be below where it, it was in April. I will predict that consume, consumption will be clearly declining as a percentage. I'm going to predict that the stress on the economy from a variety of things, including the continuing trade war, I'll come back to that in a second. The number of jobs that were lost in key sectors and will continue to be lost, offset by the number of jobs that will be gained in infrastructure, because whether the president wants to talk about infrastructure or not, when you repair a levy, that's infrastructure. When you prepare, when you when you when you fix a dam, that's that's a, that's infrastructure. And we're going to be forced to do that kind of stuff, whether we like it or not. And that's going to hire Americans domestically. So when you put all that together, and there's all these inconsistent data points, my guess is that we are very close to the end of the party that the sugar high is going to be ending soon, just like it did for the taxes. Mm -hmm. So the sugar high for taxes is now over. And that has got a precipitable effect it's had on the economy. 
I believe the sugar high of false consumer confidence is coming to an end. And when that happens, then you're going to see not only a correction in the market, you're going to see a correction in a lot of other things. So my overall assessment is if you're in gold already, it's a great place to be. If you're in uh, treasury bills, be careful, keep them short term. If you're into um, the stock market, get out. If you're into um, a big car, don't do it because oil is going to be more expensive in the future. And when I put all that together, I say to myself, it's a good time to try and build up your liquidity. It's a great time to get your debt down. If you haven't paid off your credit cards, please do so immediately. And let's refocus on this next month and see, is there a place where you can safely invest as a small person without risk of losing your capital assets? With with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to some of the news that's happening on the international front. Uh, Theresa May is stepping down. She's been a lame duck prime minister for six months. She had no chance of doing the Brexit deal um, for a variety of reasons. And at this point, we're looking at a way to analyze what happened with the European Parliament and with Theresa May. So how do we interpret these uh, European elections? Uh, I started touch a little bit about Theresa May and how she's a lame duck, which she is, and, and all the issues associated with Brexit. And I was, di- I was kind of transitioning this into this conversation about the European Parliament because I want to come back and tie the two together in the end. What happened that was really, and by the way, the market responded extremely well in Europe uh, right after these elections. Uh, hmm. the, the, the smart money in Europe is breathing an enormous sigh of relief. And the reason is, although the far-right parties did pick up some seats, they didn't pick up that many. And the Greens actually picked up as many or more. So what, if you think the of The thing it, that's interesting is that's not being reported quite as Not as heavily. Loudly. But it's, it's what happened. Mm-hmm. That's what the market responded to. Because what's, particularly in Germany, the Greens did really well. And, and that's important because with Merkel leaving office, and we have an untested successor, and Merkel's even making some noises that she's not wild about her successor now, but it's too late, that's over. Germany, clearly, of all the countries in Europe, has the best ability to skate through what's started. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's going to pull out of a European recession first, it will be Germany. But Merkel doesn't see that happening, and neither do the voters in Europe, apparently. So if you think of the election results as like a barbell, on the one side is a whole bunch of people that are angry and populist and right-wing and xenophobic and keep these foreigners out of here and I don't want any more people coming stealing my job. I'm putting a southern accent right. on them because that's where they're located in our country. But the, in Europe, pine, the pine group, the populist, yeah. illiberal, nationalist, Euroskeptic yeah. and, and by the way, good news on that. Didn't, didn't the premier of Austria just step down today? Prime Minister of Austria? I heard that he, that he was going. I hope he did because he's been embroiled in a scandal. There's a far righty. And, and you got guys like Victor Orman, who visited the, the White House last uh, week and got a great reception. And here this guy is a complete autocrat. Trump buddies. Trump buddy, complete right-wing nationalist, what everybody in Europe fears. And so they go to the polls. And this is so Orman's getting treated like royalty, even though he's basically jailing newsmen and doing all the kinds of things that Trump would like to do and can't do here yet. And he's a far-right nationalist. And he's an anti-immigrant, which is how this all started. And that all started because of Merkel's policies on austerity, which were wrong, and we called them wrong all along. So what's happening now is Merkel, who believed in austerity, and she was wrong and can't see why that's so. And you got to, because she grew up in East Germany, she doesn't get it. So she's going to be gone. She's can't, she's just not controlling it anymore. So in the absence of the power of an Angela Merkel to control the future of Europe, and Macron has not yet 
survived enough for people to accept that he's the new leader, although he's pitching it, it leaves the, the populist, populist to split into two camps. And just like in the United States where the middle's going away and now you got two extremes or two different aspects. Two, two barbells. Two, yeah. two barbells, right? Yeah. You got a whole clump of people over here that are white nationalists and anti-immigrant and all that stuff. And then you got a whole bunch of people over here going, wait a minute, the planet's on fire. The Greens, and you got people over here saying, you know, we've got to do something with all these people that are starving to death on our on our borders, and we, you know, and we're not going to shoot people to come into our country, just like we didn't want to shoot the Russians to shoot them or the East Germans to shoot them when they're leaving the countries. In other words, you got all these tectonic, tectonic, like in tectonic plates, coming together, and the the electorate correctly, I think, realized it was on one side of that divide or another, and it's yeah. not in the middle, and that's where Angela Merkel was. She was in the middle with austerity, trying to give everybody what they wanted, but not delivering to anybody. So to me, the European Parliament elections are good in the sense that no one will have the power to do austerity any longer. And by the way, the Italians have already blown it off. The Greeks are blowing it off. So austerity never made sense in the first place, and it's going to go away. In its place will come some kind of either a horse trade or stagnation. It's got to be one of the two. But the key thing to recognize is that the middle there, like here, has continued to disappear. So in the United States today, anybody that tells you that what a Democratic candidate, for example, for president needs to do is to go, go get a bunch of those Trump voters and get those middle people in the middle back, there's nobody there. Hmm. There's just nobody there. And the, the rhetoric of the xenophobia, the rhetoric of anti-immigrant, the, the rhetoric of you know, my country right or wrong, my country. All that kind of rhetoric did enormous damage in Europe, but it wasn't enough to take Europe down. And so what people are basically saying in these elections is they still believe in the European experiment. I think that's important. And they believe that it needs to change because they think they got things wrong. And people got to, I mean, there's no question, Merkel run it for the last 10, 15 years. This was Merkel's plaything. I mean, this was Merkel's assignment. And she did it mostly right, but she got this austerity thing really, really wrong. So she pushed a lot of people out of work. She put elevated pro uh, stress on the economies because the German way is to basically do the right thing, Heidi, and we'll get a job. You know, it's like, and the reason they can get away with that in Germany, they have an incredible safety net system. There's nothing like it in the Western world. So when you've got a safety net that keeps people fed and housed, even when they're not working, it gives you room to maneuver, but sooner or later, you got to pay the piper when you try to do austerity in countries where there is no safety net. I just named uh, Greece. Well, as Greece an is a good example. Classic of that. example. So I think these are all good. Now, how does it tie up Theresa May? The way it ties up Theresa May is this: trying to negotiate a settlement to Brexit, the way she went at it was impossible. She was looking for again the middle when there is no middle. So what's going to happen? And as we all know, Boris Johnson is running as the, the leading contender to replace her. Who knows if that's going to happen? But there's only one, I think, of two possible outcomes. Now, it's possible there's some miraculous third way. I don't think so because, you know, I don't think Theresa May is that smart, but the people around her are. And they couldn't come up with one. Mm -hmm. I mean, they couldn't even get past Northern Ireland, right? That was like the big stopping block. So I'm going to say that the odds of some secret third way we haven't figured out probably doesn't exist. No, it's either going to be no deal exit or a new referendum. Yeah. Or, well, that's, no, it's either going to be no deal or they don't leave. stay in. Yeah. Whether it's referendums whether, involved referendum in the way. Or not. And okay, I think the referendum right. should get called in either event. Okay. If they were going to leave, they should put it to a vote. If they're going to, because now people know what the price of leaving is. Mm -hmm. But if they're not, and if they're not going to leave, they should put it to a vote. But here we are. Theresa May is gone. You got an October 29th deadline. If I had to bet, 
And I hate to say this, but if I had to bet, I would bet they're going to pull something stupid like a no-deal Brexit. Mm -hmm. I want to go on record. I think I've said this before. If they do that, it will be the end of the British Empire that started with the Spanish Armada losing. That was an act of God. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth the <laughs> yeah, first. Yeah. The first. Elizabeth R. <laughs> Didn't need a number. It was Elizabeth R. Elizabeth Regina. So my concern is, and it's a very serious concern, that they'll do a no-deal Brexit. It will unbelievably cripple the UK. And they will not re they will not recover from it for generations, plural. And it will be the end of, and I, I say the end of empire, because I'm joking, of course, the British Empire. Hail Britannia. You know. But what I mean by that is the UK, as we know it, which is the consortium of Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and, and, and Britain, are going to feel so much economic pain that you won't be able to run a Tory for dog catcher for at least 20 years. Right. Well, already, it's they're, they're losing. Yeah. Either people who are pro-Brexit are going to the Brexit party, which is, what, six weeks old or something like that? Yeah, and, that's, and, and it's, and that's it's no less biggest, a brilliant light than Neil right. Farage runs that. Right, yeah. Or they're they're going to other other groups that are yeah. that are more yeah. rational. And then the, the no Brexit people, which probably represents about fifty five percent of mm -hmm. the British population, so they would win the referendum if it went, which is right. why the right. Tories probably won't have one. Those fifty five percent are saying, you know, wait a minute, this is just nuts. Yeah. We're going to get creamed here. Yeah. So what I'm afraid of or concerned about is that the Tories will, out of a, I don't know what the conceit is. But uh, the conceit of white Anglo-Saxon superiority, I don't know what the conceit is, but there's a conceit running here that they'll just say to the British public, you're not going to get another referendum. To heck with you. We're just going to let the clock run out and we're going we're to just roll out of this thing. To the extent that they are expecting Donald Trump to save them, Oh my God! I can't imagine that that's really. You know that's going on. Uh, oh. That's Neil Frosch. That's oh. that's that's what he keeps saying is what we'll do is we'll dump the Europeans Makes and the, my head the hurt. Americans will buy everything we couldn't sell oh. in Europe. Oh, oh, wow. painful, right? <laughs> Very painful. Now, when you say it, it sounds stupid. <laughs> that's how bad it is. Okay, and that's really the hail mary pass they are throwing. Okay. Well, the Americans will take us. No, they won't. I wonder and what the Scottish will do if that happens. I, I think that, as I said, it's the end of the UK. So yeah. you, 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 the Scots will, I think, will basically leave the UK. Yeah. I think that the Irish are going to have another war. Yeah. And it took 40 years to end that war. That we're restarting it for mm -hmm. no good reason. Unbelievably crazy. But I would say watch for new violence in Northern Ireland and, and, and the Irish border. And... In the, in, in the midst of all that, I do believe Macron will continue to consolidate his influence. I think he's got a heck of a problem in Italy, uh, and he knows it. Um, but I'm hoping that these European parliamentary elections are going to temper that a little bit. The Italians may start to rethink their zealotry on that issue. And with, May, with Angela Merkel gone, they'll have less to be mad about. Mm -hmm. They were upset about austerity. With her gone, nobody's going to be pushing us there. Yeah, Mr. but Macron. but I mean, I think the the immigrant. I mean, the fact that they're on the front line of the of the of the refugees. Also, it's an issue, it's an issue because it's a big issue. That's that's something that. But remember the the, 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 the scapegoating of yeah. of incoming refugees is is pretty strong. Yeah, although situation. you know the Italians have a two thousand year history of conquering other people and bringing them into. Mm -hmm. to the it's Italian true. peninsula. Yes. You look at the Roman Empire. And... Exactly. I mean, the, the ratio of citizens of Rome to occupants was like one in a hundred. 
But usually those were slaves that they brought in. Well, they were, they started as slaves, but then they also ended up as freemen. They ended up as merchants. They ended okay. up as a lot yeah. of other things. Yeah, they end, they started out as as slaves from from conquest. Yes, exactly. Right? But but my I guess my point is that the 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 opportunity here for Europe is whether it wanted it or not, it got a crisis of the first order. And you know, one of my favorite lines is never let a good crisis go to waste. So let's see if Macron and what's left of Europe post Merkel can repair the pieces. And we won't know what that looks like until after October 29th. Okay. Because what Brexit will do, it will badly wound Europe, but I don't think it will destroy it. It will basically take it, take England off the game board as an international power. And it will leave the United States even more isolated, in my humble opinion, because they're already isolated. And what's doing going on with Iran could conceivably further isolate them. Now, so far, Trump's bluff on Iran is working. Uh, I believe that the current shipments of oil out of Iran have dropped precipitously, even below the 1.5 million barrels a day they were doing to places like China and a few other exempt countries. So now that they, he's blocked them, my guess is they're going to come to a fork in the road pretty darn soon, and the price of oil will help drive when they get there. And because the Iranian oil's off the market and oil companies like to gouge, that day would happen sooner rather than later with the Iranians box like they are. So now we're going to be talking about significantly higher prices of, of, of oil and fossil fuels and what that will do to Europe's decision as to how to end run America. Now, what I mean by end run is I believe that the Europeans, and they've been actively talking about it with Iran, the Chinese have been talking about it actively, doing a barter system. Now, barter system would have the benefit, it would end run all U.S. banks. So it's something that the sanctions couldn't affect. So trade trade oil for other goods and actually cut out the dollar altogether in the, dollar in the exchange. And if that were to happen, then the dollar stops being the reserve currency. We commented on this show earlier that one of the reasons that things are going up is because the dollar is a reserve currency and people are getting it. Even Iranians are buying more dollars because of fear of what's going to happen in the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's where we are. And, and the idea that the, the Trump administration is going to be able to create an economy strong enough to pull England out of the hole it's digging for itself, or frankly, even pull Europe out of the lesser hole that England's throwing them into, I don't think that's a realistic expectation. And I would say that the idiocy that we've seen as an economic policy from the Trump administration in the last two years, I don't see any reason that's going to change. Mm -hmm. Larry Kudlow's still there, <laughs> and, 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 and Trump doesn't understand well, economics. It's, it's still a ship of fools. It really what we were talking is. About last month. It's an amazing situation, and you know, and like notice how fast he stopped the trade war with Mexico and Canada when he had a bigger fire that he started in in China. Now nothing changed, right? Yeah. He dropped the sanctions, so they said, okay, we'll drop ours. So everything they did was this big phony war that ended with an armistice where everybody went to exactly where they started. Yeah, but the people are still paying for that. Of course they are, and they will of continue they to pay are. for that at it, least until. The end of the summer. Yeah, I'm going to predict the productivity is going to go down starting in two months as well, mm -hmm. by the way. Okay, so that's that's that information. Now, I want to, before we go, uh, there's some other economic stuff I'd like to touch on if we don't, if we don't run out of time. By the way, I want to just touch on um, Indian elections. Large democracy in the world, India. Surprised everybody, including the Indians. Modi came out with such a mandate. Did you see the results in that election? Yeah, it was like 60% or something. He's he an absolute majority. In fact, it's the first time I think that a prime minister of India has had a majority of himself, the, right? He, has, yeah. he doesn't have to form, form a coalition. No, and, he, and, he and, can, and he, it's yeah. in a back-to-back -back presidency. Yeah. I think that's astounding. What did he do right that got him that result? That toilets. we toilets, and we touched on this many shows ago. He did two things: toilets before temples. Yes. 
right? So he said, you know what? If people realize that we can help them defecate with more dignity and have less disease, mm -hmm. we will get people to realize we are serious about raising the plight of the, of the lower classes. And that's who came out for it. The second thing that he did, which was brilliant, is by putting in an electronic transfer payment system for all Indian welfare, there's a lot of people in Indian welfare, one form or another, and cutting all that graft out in between, he took so much heat for that, it worked. Right. So now when they send a dollar out of Delhi to a village, 99 cents gets there. Right. Before it was like you send a dollar, 30 cents got there. If they were lucky, right. If they were lucky. The bakshish economy. The bakshish is amazing. So that really did it. And then the third thing he did, which absolutely took incredible heat for, and I was glad when he did it, and now I'm even more glad, and that is when he basically reissued the rupee. As he said, there's too many rupees in mattresses. The black economy, the underground economy, was rivaling the above-ground economy. And when he did that, he took enormous heat because even the peasants had old rupees that they you know, were unable to cash in. So he took all this heat for some basic economic stuff, traded it for doing a little more Hindu xenophobia than I would have liked, frankly, mm -hmm. but didn't go crazy, has not, has not increased the tension on the Muslims in India. Did a good job of backing out of the war over Kashmir four weeks ago. But I, I just want to point out, the result he got in the world's largest democracy, it takes a month to vote in, Italy, in, in India. Because it's actually six weeks. Six it's weeks. Six weeks of elections. It's amazing, right? And, and, and I'm very happy that Modi pulled it off because it says if you take care of people's fundamental needs, you, they do better, you do better, the country does better, the planet does better. And as a result, India is the strongest economy in the world right now, stronger than China because it's still growing at least six, seven percent. China's probably down around four or five. So I just want to share that result about Indian elections. Now, uh, oh, and, and, and one more. I want to talk about weapons in the Middle East. Tearing up the Iran deal, when that was the one thing that kept Iran from developing nuclear weapons, and basically pushing Iran off a cliff, which is what Trump is currently doing, is nuts on every level. Why is this going on? Because the Shiite and the Sunni are having a fight that's been going on for a thousand years. And he, Trump, for a lot of historical reasons, continues to back Sunnis, the, the, the Saudi Arabians, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Kuwait, those are the Sunnis. The Shia are the Iranians, the Iraqis. What's happening is, not only has he now unleashed nuclear technology to the Saudis, which I just think is crazy as the Dickens, and with the blessing of Netanyahu he did it, because Netanyahu clearly had a green light that. And so what does Netanyahu think that the Iranians and the Saudis will nuke each other and somehow Israel will survive? I don't, get it. I don't know how that's figured out. I don't know where, where that, that calculation is. But it helps to explain why the Mossad in Israel has been consistently against Netanyahu for his entire term. Mm -hmm. always, the intelligence community in Israel has always been scared of this guy, that he would do stupid things like this, and he's doing it. Now, throw one more fact in there, and that is, I think it was yesterday? Yeah, no, it was maybe Friday of last week. The Congress had passed a law that said you can't send weapons to Saudi Arabia because of Yemen. Even he signed the law. Mm -hmm. He decided, he told Pompeo to declare a, quote, emergency. So that would be like the emergency that we ended up paying for the wall with military funds. This guy's great at declaring phony emergencies. But using the emergency rubric, he's now sending all those weapons to Saudi Arabia to further inflame the Middle East. Because Saudi Arabia said, we want to beat up the Iranians, and you, you guys got all the best weapons, right. so let's do that. There's buddies. Okay, um, before we run out of time, i got to tell her, turn to, I won't give her last name, but we got a great email from Lynn. Lynn, thank you very much. 
for sending us a note after the last show. And in Lynn's note, uh, she basically talked about the fact on April 30th, we discussed uh, 5G and Huawei, that is the company, H-U-A-W-E-I, that has the leading technology for 5G in the world. And, and, and the question that, um, that sort of Lynn's asking, which I want to touch on is, is there a way for the U.S. to do something more like what Europe's doing with 5G, where they could invest in ways to manage the potential of espionage using 5G equipment from away? Or is the absolute ban of it the way Trump's approaching it mm -hmm. the, the only, only way to go? And I thank you for the question, Lynn, because you're absolutely right. The way the Europeans do, are doing it is the only way you can do it for two reasons that are really quite, you can't overcome these. Number one, we didn't invest in 5G, and the Chinese did. They got there first. They did what we usually do. They innovated, and they innovated the most important technology coming on the planet, except for biotech, that we know of. And we let them do that under Trump's watch. Number two, they were smart enough to allocate the mid-band of the spectrum, which I think we talked about this in the last show, mm -hmm. and we didn't. Mm -hmm. So we can't afford to build our own secondary H 5G we have is nowhere near as good as the Chinese 5G. So on a pure competitive basis, our system isn't going to be as good and it's going to be very unaffordable, which means we can't sell it to third-party countries unless we beat them up and force them not to buy from Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So I think that what, what we have to do now is to say, let's get real. We didn't have to have, be in this position, but we're in this position. We didn't invent the best technology, ours is second best. We only have so much weight we can throw around and only so much we can beat up other people forcing them to do what we want them to do. And therefore, whether Trump is in office or not in 2021, when we roll out 5G in the next two years, we probably should do it with a very concerted effort to maintain a high degree of counterintelligence information gathering and dispersal on all 5G networks. Here's the rub. Right now, Trump is narrowing, is hollowing out our intelligence capacity. Well, I mean, they're going to war against you. I mean, yeah, he's the, going to war against the, the intelligence, intelligence community. community. And to Lynn's question, could you do what the Europeans are doing? The answer is yes. And you should, because we already lost the race. Who's going to get there first? That's over. We lost. We came in in a two-person race. We came in second. We do not have a competitive system that's cheaper or better. And we don't have the ability to browbeat people to do everything we want them to do and we've been browbeating them so much, you're not going to get cooperation in 5G. So what the Europeans are doing is saying, you know what, the Americans are sort of out to lunch. What do we do to protect ourselves? We've got to have 5G. Okay, we'll buy the Chinese system, and we'll put a lot of money into counterintelligence. And that's the only thing you can do at this point, because you're not going to stop the 5G right. system from coming, and therefore you're not going to stop the Chinese. So uh, I, I share the concerns people have that 5G is a great place to hide espionage mm -hmm. activities. But I think we could counter it if we had a strong intelligence community. And since we're hollowing ours out, we're going to have to rely on the Europeans to do it. Unfortunately, that means we won't have that protection here in the U.S. And that's why Trump's going to stop 5G here from the Chinese. Ah, but that has a downside, which means we won't have the technology the rest of the world's got. So let me ask you this. If the rest of the world was operating on 4G the way we do, and we were still doing dial-up, how fast would we be growing as an economy? Yeah. I mean, it's insane, right? I mean, you, as soon as you ask the question, you know the answer. So we're doing it. We're going to do it to ourselves. And now I'm back again to consequences. So people can drink all the bathwater they want of Trump's, and they can hope that, that, that somehow that they can believe him and it'll all come true. But if you worked for 25 years in Lordstown, Ohio, uh, your job didn't come back. And it didn't come back because we don't make internal combustion engines at Lordstown anymore. 
and the government of the United States is not interested in making the cars of the future, which are going to be hydrogen or electric, at the very least electric hydrogen. So we're, we're, we're pushing back on our manufacturers to make the next technological breakthrough in products, which means we're hurting ourselves in the export market. We're doing tariff wars, which are hurting us in the export market. We are going to cause our own economy to stop growing so fast, which will hurt us even more in the domestic market. And when you do all those things, you lose manufacturing jobs. It's that simple. Now, uh, Bernie Sanders was getting interviewed the other day, and he had something very interesting to say about this because he was being interviewed on uh, television. And he said, I don't think that the Chinese, and I'm, I'm going to raise this story because uh, it's a good one to end the program with. Biden recently said, as you know, the Chinese are not competition. And what he was trying to say with that was, no, we can outcompete the Chinese if we want to. He's right, but we're not doing it. Well, 5G is the best example. Okay? So, yes, we could do it, but we've lost our way. We've lost, we've lost who we are. And by the way, there was a very interesting uh, statement put out by uh, oh, uh, Haas, Richard Haas, from the, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Foreign Affairs. Uh, and he, he said, which is true, what's fundamentally broken in America is we've lost our narrative. Right, yeah. We yeah. lost. Uh, we have no vision. We don't know what, what is the American yeah. dream. What uh, is the American story? Yeah. Well, and the American story used to be we're a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm who believe in principles as paramount mm -hmm. rather than where you were born, the color of your skin, or what religion you practice. Right. And so we've replaced that with we do care about where you were born, we do care about the color of your skin, and we're not going to let you live here anymore if you came from another country. I mean, so we've lost our, our narrative. Mm -hmm. And so we were the country that held ideals up, even with was not totally practical, mm -hmm. and we've become the country that has no practical ideals. So that's Richard Haas from the Council of Foreign Relations. I think that it's important because... When you look at the damage that the trade war is doing to the middle class, when you look at the damage of the tax bill that went through to the middle class, when you look at the damage the Environmental Protection Agency being gutted is doing, when you look at the damage that the Justice Department being gutted is doing, when you look at the damage of what's happened in the courts, when you add all that damage up, those are the consequences of people who used to work at Lordstown are experiencing. It's remarkable, and the farmers on top of it. Farmers, yeah. I mean, when you, and you add it all together. University students, education in yeah, general. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, and so what, our health, our health care. Yeah, and so what, Ber what Bernie Sanders said, just to this one point on the Chinese, and, and you remember he, he he actually tweeted to, to, to push back on Biden, but in the interview last night, what he said, which was correct, he said they are our competitors, but we could have an even playing field to compete with them on, and if we did, we'd be just fine. And he's right. So if the if the competitive alignment was, we will. Go to your country and we will build cars in your factories with your labor, but you can't pay them a tiny fraction of what we pay our labor. Because then what we're doing is exporting our jobs. So what we want to do is be able to let the best producer of every good and in, in service be the producer of that good and service. And we will, as an economy, continue to migrate to higher levels of intelligence required selling. In other words, a commodity selling you can do in a third world country, right? You can do it in the middle of the Congo. But if you want to sell the stuff of the future, like 5G, you have to be competitive. And so what Bernie's saying is, let's get our competitive shoes on, and let's do that as a way to maintain trade relationships with other nations, but do it on an even playing field so that our union workers don't get disadvantaged by the system. And take the word union out of it. Just our workers generally mm -hmm. don't get disadvantaged by the system. So our that's really... Our workforce. Yeah, our workforce is... We've got to get... We've got to start standing for the middle class again mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can't survive without a middle class. We can't survive politically. We can't survive economically. We can't survive spiritually. And we can't get our narrative back. That's really what's really mm -hmm. at stake here.
So with that in mind, and all these consequences building up from very bad decisions, which continue to get made, I would say one thing to the Congress of the United States, and that is, when you see a man like the Prime Minister of Japan, grimace as he's shaking the hand of the President of the United States, who's making an absolutely silly grimace back. I mean, it's like, <laughs> kind of thing, you know what I mean? It wasn't even a smile. And why that was happening was because Trump literally said he didn't care about the short-range missiles that North Korea is now sending. Every one of those missiles could hit Japan. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them could hit South Korea. So what he's just told our allies, like he did in Europe when he told I have no regard for you. Don't care about you guys. Yeah. Hey, America first. And, if the, and he went on to say in the same sentence, standing there with Abe right next to him, they're not testing intercontinental ballistic missiles. So I'm okay. So I'm fine. So I'm fine. That's where, that's where abject nationalism takes you. And thank God he doesn't know anything about military expertise. But I do believe we are sitting in a situation where pretty soon he will correctly think he does not need permission from anybody, including the courts. We are very, very close to losing the nation. And he could not have done that to Abe if he were sitting and being grilled under an impeachment proceeding. I'm delighted since the last time we did this show, we went from zero to 30 Congress people are in favor of immediate impeachment. This is not a political show, but what I'm saying to people, if you want to save the economy, we got to get rid of this guy. And that's what this show is really about today. We got to stop this insanity and stop it now. With that, folks, I know we can. We're capable of everything. I've never seen or heard of a problem we can't solve with today's technology and resources. But we have to have the will to solve it. And that will starts with, we got to get our nation back. Yeah, we We've got, lost America. It's time for a new story. So we got to get that story. And we got to create a story mm -hmm. that we care about. Right. That's, that, that's who we are in our soul that level. It goes back to the moral center of American. Yeah. I, I, I still uh, shed a tear when I read some of the Founding Fathers' uh, original thoughts about what this country was about and how it would rise above others and, and why. And the fact that we could be a nation of paupers from other nations and exceed mm -hmm. what we were capable of. And we did. And with that, I wish everybody a, a great month. I hope uh, we start to see some progress on a number of fronts. And please keep the pressure on to your elected representatives. We, it's, it's up to, if you want to have a wallet with anything in it, we have got to change the direction this country is going in, and we've got to do it sooner rather than later because the damage, the cost of these policies is building to a point where we're not going to be able to pay it. Thanks, everybody. I hope you have a great day, great week. I love on a sour guys. note, but uh, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, i got to tell the truth. <laughs> so let's hopefully, uh, that the, hopefully it's the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thanks, everybody. Have a great May and June. <laughs>